Welcome to the Water People Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Hill, and my co-host is Dave Rastovich. This season is supported by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet. We acknowledge the Bundjalung Nation, the first and ongoing custodians of the land and waters where we work and play, who have lived, worked, and cared for this sea country for tens of thousands of years. Respect and gratitude to all First Nations people who continue to practice the cultural, spiritual, and educational customs of their ancestors. Today we're in conversation with surfer, filmmaker, and musician Jack Johnson. Jack studied film at UCSB and went on to make culture-shaping movies like Thicker Than Water and A Broke Down Melody. More recently, he's a Grammy-nominated artist and the founder of two charitable foundations with his wife and business partner, Kim, including the Johnson Ohana Charitable Foundation, which supports and funds environmental, art, and music education, and the Kakua Hawaii Foundation, which provides experiential environmental education in the schools and communities of Hawaii. We caught up with Jack as he prepped to release his eighth studio album, Meet the Moonlight, in June 2022, and we got to quiz him about balancing family and work, the function of the artist today, and where style comes from, both in music and in surfing. We hope you enjoy. Uh, Good to see you, brother. Yeah, Yeah, you too. We we miss you all. We miss seeing you guys here in this amazing time of year right now. I know. I miss you guys too. Can't wait till we can all hang. Where are you right now, Jack? Uh, I'm in LA, actually. So we um, we were doing we're rehearsing for our tour, starting up pretty soon, and then we've had a crazy couple of days. It's like you guys know my like my normal life pretty well, and then it's like every once in a while I find myself in this situation where I'm like I played Jimmy Kimmel last night, and the president of the United States was on the show, and then it was like <laughs> Secret Service people everywhere, like holding their earphones and stuff, and like cops <laughs> everywhere, and then. I'm like going around to all these different radio shows and stuff today. And it's, it's all actually pretty fun and exciting, you know, but it's, um, couldn't do it all the time for sure. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of fun to come in and out of it. I bet. Has it, when, when was the last time you were in this flurry? Was it 2017 that time? Yeah. Yeah. It would yeah. have been 2017. Exactly. And so wow. it's been five years, kind of longest, longest in between we've ever had between two cycles of putting out an album. Yep. Mm. How interesting. Um, well, I, I, maybe we'll save. Yeah, I've got yeah. a couple of questions straight away that popped into my mind that would be um, interesting to get your perspective on, but we'll, we'll circle around back to that. Yeah, we, we right. always begin these conversations, Jack, by asking about a time or experience after which you were never the same. Do you have a story like that that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, a time that I can remember where it was just, I can remember exactly where I was on the part of the road I was driving. I was on my way to school and in high school, went to Kahuku High School, and I was in my little truck and my friends were all in the truck. And this, we used to listen to K2H, like the college radio station, and this song by Fugazi came on called Waiting Room. And when that song came on the radio, it was like, it just defined, I'd never heard something like I'd heard rock music and all this stuff, but it all kind of felt almost uh, unattainable or like you couldn't do it. When I heard Waiting Room, it was this moment where I was like, oh, I got to make a band. Like me and my friends need to be in a band. And like that song was like the blueprint. When I heard it, I was like, we could almost make that sound. And it was funny because that was the first, that was the first thing I'd heard by Ian Mackay. And then I went to find out that he had another group called Minor Threat when he was even younger. And it was even more attainable because it was just four teenagers in a room doing their best. And all of a sudden I was like, all right, you play bass you play guitar, 
you kind of know how to play drums. Let's do this. You know, like we started just getting together in my brother Trent's garage and uh, practicing every day. It was so much fun. So I don't know, like ever since then, I remember like I didn't have a band and I didn't really have an idea I would have a band and then heard this one song almost pulled over to be able to listen. Cause sometimes the radio station would go in and out, but we were kind of late for school. So we're like, no, no, keep going. <laughs> but we're like, what is this? I want, what is this? And we waited to hear what the name of the song was and everything. And then it was like, from there, it was like, I've, I've always had a band, like whether it was that band or in college, I had a band and then I've kind of doing my own stuff, but that was sort of the moment they decided like, I got to do this. Wow. That's classic. And when you heard that, was it the feeling of, um wanting to know what that felt like that made you want to pursue it or did you like want to have a band so that you could have really really good wild parties or was it to meet <laughs> girls or like what was the, the next layer in there that was making you want to do that yeah no i think it was um you could hear something in that song that was the rawness of friends hanging out making something together there was like this uh this emotion the song had and there's like this really cool backing vocal track on the song that later I would realize it was very Clash-like. I didn't know the Clash well enough to know, but like when you listen to those Clash recordings and there's always like somebody in the back just like yelling, a lot of times it's just like, seems like somebody in the corner of the room just decided to let loose. And, and it's uh, <laughs> it's got that feeling of like, hey, these nobody's scripting this and there's some people in there and they're just like, there's no rules that somebody has to follow up. Like the other guy in the band wants to just yell a backup lyric they can, you know, and, and and it was that feeling. It was like things were off mic and away over there. And, and it it just, it, it felt like it was made in a garage. And it mm. just, I had just been playing guitar enough to kind of like know some power chords and whatnot. And so when I heard that, it made me feel like, I think back to your question, it was just like, what could be more fun than like, you know, well, I guess the thing would be more fun we know is like surfing and stuff, but I already had that. <laughs> and so I was like, what else could be more fun than just like when the waves are flat to be able to get like a bunch of friends together and just try to make music, you know, the best yep. we could. And everything else like that you mentioned were the byproducts. Like uh, I didn't really realize that, um, you know, that you could play a song to a girl stuff like that until later, later. And especially it wasn't the kind of music that we were trying for. It was very just raw, like kind of punk rock <laughs> stuff. You mentioned surfing, Jack. A lot of us know that you are surfer and a really talented surfer I was curious to ask about your foundational relationship with water oftentimes there's someone who really inspires us or kind of holds our hand through those formative early years with the water was there someone like that for you yeah I mean definitely my dad my brothers too later but um because First, my dad got me comfortable enough where then my brothers could take me out and like push me into waves and stuff when it, when we were out on like open face kind of waves. But like in the very beginning, it was my dad taking me out. And it's wild. It's funny. I'm like only thinking about this right now. But um, it's I've had this memory where like my dad had me on the front of his board and he was surfing. I forget if he was on his knees or standing up or what, but he had his hand on my shoulder and I was up on the front of his longboard. And it was like this double up kind of sandbar day at, um, at Pupakea, not thing, but it was like, you could get into it real easy on a longboard. And then there was this fun little double up, you could kind of ride over and set up. And then it was peeling, just like this peeling sandbar. And I remember being a little kid and watching the face of the wave, like getting more and more kind of coming over. And then all of a sudden being like, whoa, we're about to get barreled. I didn't know what that word was or anything yet. But I just remember like watching the wave come over me. And then just like, it was like, we flipped over and like, it was underwater and I could feel my dad like grabbing my arm and trying to keep me underwater. We were getting tumbled for a while. 
and they pulled me up to the surface and I was like, whoa, I freaked out. And I don't remember, I just remember that experience. And then now it's funny because like as a dad myself and like going through the phases of trying to teach your kids and just get them stoked and everything. There's some days where you're like, man, that sandbar looks so fun. I bet we can get barreled and taking the kids out and getting them on the front of a boogie board or a surfboard. And I've had a few times where like, you, you maybe get one, then you get greedy. Like, let's go get another one. And then all of a sudden you go on like, like a, a four footer or five footer or something. Then all of a sudden it's like, uh Oh, and you get too deep. And then all of a sudden it's like, they don't want to be in the water for like three months, you know, yep. they're like, that's freaky. Like <laughs> we're navigating every dad that I, right yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's you guys great. know it. So it's, you tend to blow it a few times and you can't help it. Cause you just want them to get barreled. But it's funny. I have the memory. It's like one of my earliest memories of being on a wave is just getting fully pitted, but it was a bit of a closeout. Well, that's nice to know that that can happen and it doesn't, it doesn't wreck the trajectory of a surfing yeah. life forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just like a, a quick deviation, you know, and then it's yeah. uh try some other interests for a little bit. And then if you're lucky, they, they get back into it. All my kids took to it. They all love surfing now. So. Oh, that's Go awesome. I, yeah. I can imagine it's in your, in your blood and in your bones. It makes me think like you just said then about the other interests and things. And I, and I have to say that I've always been hugely impressed and uh, respectful of the, the many skills you have and your, your brothers and the, the circle. It seems like you have your inner circle in, in Hawaii where, um, there is music, there's surfing there's sort of, you know, I guess, bigger picture thinking and sort of philosophical discussion um, and food growing and all these, you know, sailing. Um, I probably said sailing already, but it's it, to me it's no, no, no. a deep part of it. And I was <laughs> yeah. curious, was that also from your dad? Like where did that come from, that kind of Renaissance man thing where that you have many and varied interests? Yeah, yeah, definitely from a lot from my dad. He was... He was the kind of guy where like um, pretty big shoes to fill. He was never trying to get you to fill them or anything, but just um, he was an eccentric. He kind of um, he interesting thing about my dad is when he was about 20 years old, he fixed the old boat and he had done like a little bit of sailing. Somebody kind of gave him an old beat up sailing boat and he he fixed the thing up just enough. And then he sailed around California for a little while where he was born. And then he decided to sail to Hawaii when he was 20 years old. And he kind of used to always joke that that's how he learned how to sail it was just going for it. And just like, you think back, I mean, it's like, it's one thing to think about doing it now, if you're 20, you know, if you're that young and had all the devices in the world to be able to like track it just in case and all that stuff. But there was just like no GPS, nothing. And he just went for it. It's like, Hey honey, I'll see my, my oldest brother was already a, a baby. He was like one year old or something. He's like, Hey, I'll meet you over in Hawaii. So my mom flew over like a, in a month and they, she just kind of like went around and tried to find them and, they found each other again. And so, wow. but anyways, he was like, he was pretty far out, you know, like he definitely, uh, you guys had a chance to meet my dad, right? Over the I years. Did, yeah. yeah. I got Probably a had a surf together and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so, um, anyways, like he was always just kind of off on pretty cool adventures. He was very much like a family man and like a great dad, but it was kind of cool. Cause sometimes when I was real little, I'd be like, where's dad? You know, and my mom was like, Oh, he's, she showed me on a map. Like he went down here to help this guy sail his boat back to Hawaii because sometimes people would, would get my dad to come along for an adventure if they needed another person to do <clears throat> the sail that wasn't quite as desirable. Like sometimes people like to kind of follow, go for a downwind course down to Tahiti and whatnot, but coming back isn't always that easy, you know? And so like, sometimes they would hire my dad to like do the upwind sail. And um, 
so anyways, he was always off on cool adventures like that. And then he would always come back home and, um, yeah, he was into sailing and, um, he was really into music. He never played music, but he would always, it was cool. Cause like thinking back right now, like he used to always be like, check this song out. And he would like play me songs. He always would hang out in his little shed. He had like a work shed out back. And so some nights I just kind of wandered out there and I was a little kid and he would have like, it was his tool shed. So he had all these kind of old school stuff and he would like give me a hammer and like a two by four. And I would just be like trying to, I'm talking real little, you know, like a, and just trying to nail things or he'd show me how this. And so anyway, so I had these memories of like sitting out my dad's tool shed, trying to figure out how tools worked and stuff. But he'd always be like, check this song out. You turn it up real loud. And it'd be like either a Gabby Pahinui song, like an old Hawaiian song. But even like with um, <clears throat> K2H, they would always have these different DJs. It was like heavy metal hour or punk rock or Brazilian music or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he would just get really into all of it. He would always like, check this mm-hmm. out. And it would be like kind of like a punk rock song or something, kind of a drivey thing. And so I, I think I got a lot of like my love for music from him, even though he didn't play mm-hmm. any instruments. You know, I just saw how he would get fully into a song, like talk about the lyrics and stuff. And um, he'd always play like vinyl records around the house and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so my dad, I mean, obviously I'm talking, I haven't talked about anything besides him. He was a huge influence in my life. But my mom, same thing. My mom was always so sweet. She loved to dance. She would always get my dad on the dance floor and stuff like that <laughs> um, at part, you know, the barbecues and parties. And uh, so she was really into music too. It really moved her to the point of getting my dad up on the dance floor. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> as a as a waterman, I'm curious about how Native Hawaiian culture impacted your family and and shaped your dad's sort of love of adventure on the ocean. Was mm-hmm. was that part of your childhood? Getting in touch with the local culture in Hawaii. Yeah. Well, yeah. So when he moved there, he was a young man, like 20 years old and he was a boat builder. And so he fell into um, like his group of friends were always working on different boats. And um, so he, he got quite into like the, the Hawaiian sailing canoes and stuff and learning to like rig those and, um, and work with the molds even. And there's a a great boat builder who still lives over on Molokai um, named Kirk. That was a good friend of my dad's and, uh, right towards the end of my dad's life, we actually designed a boat all together. I mean, Kirk did most of the work, but we would kind of tell him about the stuff we were hoping to get stuff in. Um, so a lot of those boat designs and stuff and uh, were based off of like traditional Hawaiian sailing canoes. And we would always go every summer. We would take with a couple other uncles and uh, different friends. We would go usually sail around one of the outer islands and we would camp out for like a week on these sailing canoes. And so it was always you know, you guys have been on them before. It's like, they're very narrow and you could only bring what you could fit in your little spot right in front of you. And so that shaped me quite a bit as like some of my fondest memories as a kid were just those times where you don't have much at all. It's just like, you bring like one warm thing, you try to keep dry and like a dry bag in front of you for nighttime. And then uh, just maybe two pairs of trunks, like one that's going to be wet and then one you can put on at night. And uh, those are like a lot of my favorite memories. You don't have any material things with you except for that little gear and um and those those trips but yeah and then growing up i mean besides like my dad's influence and like learning that the boat stuff through my dad some of you know like the the icons and the heroes you have growing up duke kahanamoku and um eddie aikau like those stories they're 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 monumental they're so big because like the story of a of eddie aikau basically being on a boat with a bunch of friends being too far off to see land and whatnot, but deciding I'm going to be the one to go for it. I'm going to, I'll be back. You guys stay safe here. Like those kind of stories, like growing up as a kid, it almost sounds like Greek mythology or something, you know, but it's mm-hmm. like 
a real person that you can learn about from the Hawaiian culture. That's like uh, those kind of things were huge. Duke Hanamoku, same thing. And then, yeah, the more I've gone on over my years, like lately I've been trying to learn quite a bit more like the Hawaiian language and through the language you learn the culture. And um, it's kind of like during when I was a kid, it just wasn't quite as available. There weren't the courses that take in high school. It's really nice to see the language coming back now. There's like one of my sons is taking Hawaiian language in the in his high school right now. And it's like when I was a kid, it was just sort of that generation that not a lot of people were speaking it. And it's it's beautiful to see the language coming back. Mm. But yeah, from growing up there, just like the learning musician, uh, learning songs and uh, meeting a lot of Hawaiian musicians and through the music. One of my goals was like, I know all these melodies and like I hear the I hear these songs or traditional songs from this place, but I should know what the lyrical content of these songs are. So it's like been one of my like the goals I have is like to learn Olala Hawaii well enough to be able to hear songs and know what the meanings are. There's a lot of words already that I can I can pick out and get a general idea of what the song is about. But I want to get to the point where I can have a deeper understanding of the metaphors within the songs. Mm. And to me, Jack, that's uh, that's like an indication of perhaps that learning spirit you have that came from your family and maybe the the culture around you to an extent as well. But like that ability to kind of be in the student role, you know, the beginner's mind. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's great to like always feel like a student and always want to learn. I mean, I think if you can keep that that ability to learner in life, you know, I mean, I talk about that with my kids a lot. Just um, there's a lot of consumption going on in our culture. Like there's um, you're constantly consuming information. You know, it's uh, besides like consuming food and like these different types of consumption. It's like so much information coming out. Like if kids aren't careful, they're constantly consuming. And uh, so I always try to tell my kids, I like, try to produce at least fifth, I could try to produce more. I mean, ideally like the same amount, but if you can like produce more than you consume, like do more drawings, write more stories, uh, those kind of things. And it's like, with that comes the learning process, like uh, whether it's learning how to make animation, you know, like taking the time to learn how to, when you, whenever you try to produce something, you learn a lot more than you do when you're just consuming. I guess when you consume information, that's part of a learning process too. And you can be inspired by those things, but I think you're right on about if you can, the key to life is like keeping that ability to learn and keeping that spark to want to learn. Mm. That's really interesting, Jack, thinking about producing or creating or making as kind of an antidote to defining or the way our culture tends to define us as consumers, as passive sort of mm. drinkers in of other people's creations. And that makes me want to ask you as someone who's been an artist for many years, gotten to make a living out of being an artist. What do you, you know, lots of us, feel this um compulsion to create even if it comes out of nowhere like the song did for you when you're driving down the road as you know as a teenager mm -hmm. like you have that feeling and then so much of culture whether you know you're looking at funding in schools or um what we're teaching in schools doesn't really value the arts and and creativity and creation mm -hmm. what what for you is the function of the artist today like what what's the what's the the reason why art exists like what what does it do for us culturally or personally that's a really good question i think um i heard a i heard an interesting i wish i could remember his name right now it's a i've read actually some of his uh his books too it's uh it's just i'll think of it in a minute if i can and bring it back but he talks about um mythology 
um, in different mythologies around the world and how those same myths like apply in the, in the modern day. And the one he brought up, like a real easy example he could give was about Medusa, like the story of Medusa. And when you look straight at the problem, Medusa being like the metaphor for this, like something you have to get past or like a, a thing, it's like he was he was comparing it to um, when you're looking directly at a problem. Sometimes people get frozen from being overwhelmed, like it's it's too much, and it it ends up paralyzing us to the point where we can't we can't even function more. You just see, you know, climate change take for example. It's like as a kid right now, you just hear about it, hear about it. It's like it's so big. There's nothing I can do. Like what could I possibly do? It just it makes you paralyzed from being active and part of the solution. So what he talked about is what that the metaphor of like, you can only look at Medusa through the reflection. And he brought up like music and art being that reflection. It's like, sometimes it takes um, somebody to be able to to meditate on what that issue or problem is and put it into a digestible way that you can now take a look at it. Maybe it's in a song that's like, makes you feel like there is some hope or some kind of thing like that, but it it doesn't dodge the issue, but instead it's like, and like the best thing I can figure out kind of recently, I was having this thought, it's like through music, I'm not necessarily like ever trying to teach somebody something I don't think that they know. Cause I know for me as like a music fan, most of the times, like when I get something out of a song, it's because somebody has articulated something I already knew or thought, but they finally put it into a, a poetic line or two with the right emotions to be like, oh, there it is. That's the thought I was thinking about, but they said it perfect. And so like with my music, every once in a while I get this feeling of like, oh, maybe this is worth sharing. Cause I feel like this is a thought other people might have and they can relate to this, but maybe this is worth sharing because it, it kind of puts its, it, there's, it hits the hammer or the nail on the, whatever metaphor you want to use, <laughs> it gets the point across <laughs> yeah. and it, it shares it in a way, you know? Um, so I think in some ways like music is that reflection um, that you need to be able to keep pushing forward. Oh, that's um, so beautifully said, Jack. And it makes me think about like, you know, usefulness and meaningfulness in our lives and how, you know, we can surf our lives away. We can play music till the cows come home um, and enjoy that experience. But it can kind of feel a little bit surface level if there there isn't a meaningfulness or a usefulness to it somewhere wrapped up in there as well. And mm-hmm. um and and so it's really neat to hear you speak about when you have your lyrics and your thoughts that you're um, connecting to the emotions of music and doing that in a really inclusive way. I think that's what I got out of what you were just saying mm-hmm. there, that it feels like you're standing shoulder to shoulder with the listener rather than up on a stage right. at yeah. people. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. I think um, I just always like, I love music so much that it's really easy for me to look at it from either way. It's like on this side of the microphone or on the other side, I've been at, at shows. Sometimes it's like a show where there's an actual stage and lights. Other times it's just like in the corner of the yard when somebody has a guitar and they're like playing at a get together. And it's like, it's really moving to to hear music. And I just always try to remember what it's like when you're listening, listening or participating like from that side. Um, and it really helps me, I think, when I'm when I'm singing with people, like if I'm singing and I can back off the microphone and I can hear the crowd singing the words, it's really nice to be able to back off and let them sing for a minute because I know that for a lot of those people, like that song means something totally different than it means for me. Even though I wrote it, it's like they have different memories of like a road trip or a certain time that that song is reminding them of. And it's like 
really nice to think that the songs could be serving in some way as like a soundtrack for those moments. And um, I just know how much music is meant for me through life, you know, like other people's songs. That's so beautiful. And it makes me, um, <laughs> it makes me want to uh, flash back to when Will Connor and I joined you on, um, I think it was the All that At was Once the best. tour in Australia. Yeah, that was and, so fun. I love that. That was so fun. I was so glad you were able to come along. <laughs> <on it. laughs> I'd love to say that I loved it too, but I think it's a bit more nuanced to my memory. It's, it's, it was probably one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. <laughs> and, and you know what Will's you like? Killed, you killed it every night. No, it was like, I'd look over at Will and and I was playing like percussion stuff and he's singing and, and playing guitar and he's got such a beautiful um, voice and it's a real delicate kind of voice at times. And, and I'd look over at him and right now even saying this, my heart rate is fucking elevating. <laughs> but I remember looking over at him and just being like terrified to look up and out at the crowd because especially the Sydney show, yeah, there's yeah. like 20,000 totally. people there, right? And right. and I look over at him to try and get some support, like, okay, you feel okay in this, don't you, buddy? And I look over and he's just sweating <laughs> and his, his voice is wavering a little bit like this. <laughs> and I'm like, no, man. That's the worst. Be, you got to be confident. I know, <laughs> I know the exact feeling. I I did that last night. So like we, Bullshit. like I said, we really? played it. No, no, I swear to you. I mean, I get terrified too. Sure. I get, I've gotten a little more comfortable, but every once in a while, last night we played on this TV show on Jimmy Kimmel and I looked over at Zach, the piano player in my band, and I needed the exact thing you're talking about. Like, give me a smile, give me something. I'm so freaking nervous. And I looked over at him. He just looked up at me and he looked like super scared too. And I was like, shoot, <laughs> come on. You were supposed to save me. What just happened? And so like, and it, no, we had a good laugh after, but it never gets totally easy. I still get terrified. Like, wow. okay. Yeah. So, so no, no, not all the time, or I would stop. <laughs> if it was all the time, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Most of the time is a lot of fun now. And then yeah. every once in a while you get in these moments where it's like, what are we doing up here? You get the, uh, what are they? It's like the imposter complex like, yeah. or whatever they call it. Where I'm yeah. like, wait, I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> like, this is a, how, did I, how did I end up up here? What happened? <laughs> well, man, you pull it off really well because all I could see was just that you were exactly the same uh, 30 seconds before you walked on stage to on stage and afterwards. And and uh, oh, good, thanks. And, then, and then you did a really kind thing too. And I think this was one of the, my first sort of insights into the your, your like considerate nature and and I remember after one of those shows, you know, Will and I were probably cuddling in the corner, shaking the nerves off somewhere. <laughs> and, and you walked over and, and you mentioned to us, you're like, hey, you guys are doing great. Don't, for, don't forget to enjoy it. And also remember, like, this is mellow music. When you, when you finish a song, the crowd's not going to go crazy and, like, applaud, like, wild and scream and whistle and stuff. They're probably just going to be settling in and simmering with that music and, and uh and feeling it so if, if you don't get this huge response after the songs don't worry it's all right. good and it was it was something along those lines that you said and it was yeah, just, yeah that's cool I, I really got a lot out of that because <laughs> you probably saw how much we were shitting that's ourselves sweet. at that show and and after that it did make <laughs> it easier it. but it did make me it did make me aware of yeah just that considerate nature you have and that you could um you know, pick up on some of the subtler things that are happening in in big experiences like that. And I think that's a useful thing that's... to talk about right now because, like, you know, young musicians, yeah. young people would be listening to this going, how do you stay human and how do you navigate a, a world or a life like, sure. like you are navigating um, so right. well? 
you know, it's funny. It's like we were having a conversation, me and the band. Like I said, this first time we've got to get together and play music in a while and and be together and just remember old stories. And <clears throat> we lost a, a good friend recently, the, the bass player from Ben Harper's band, Juan Nelson. And we were just talking about all of our memories because the first tour we ever did was opening for Ben Harper. And the day we got out there, man, Juan walked up to us and just said, hey, you guys, it's so good to have you here. Hey, this is our dressing room. You guys are always welcome in here. If you don't have what you need, come on in here. And every night after the show, he would like watch a lot of the show and he'd always come up and be like, you guys are doing amazing. You're doing so good. And like, cause we, he could see it's almost the exact same thing you described. I learned all that stuff just because we were so lucky. Cause like Ben Harper himself, you know, all those guys were so sweet, but we were just reminiscing on Juan cause we lost him recently, mm. but he was just like constantly telling us things like, man, it's, it's so much better when you guys, cause we, we did a lot of shows with those guys and he'd always be like, you guys are our favorite. It's always the best to have you out here. The vibes are so much better. I'm glad you guys are here. He'd always make you feel like, you know, it's just like I'd always feel more calm after we talked to Juan. And like, so anyways, it's we're really lucky to be able to not just Ben Harper and Innocent Criminals, but other bands we played with. They always kind of shared that same sentiment with us. And so, yeah, we just like to pass it on for sure. Mm. Apologies for interrupting the conversation, but we'd like to take a moment to recognize the generous folks who help make this podcast possible. Sun Butter Skincare is committed to protecting people and the planet. They make vegan, reef-safe SPF 50 sunscreen packaged in reusable and recyclable tins. They're also the world's first certified palm oil-free sunscreen brand. Check out sunbutter.com.au to learn more about their skin and ocean-friendly lines of sunscreen, surf zinc, and skin care. Sanook has been advocating for a more playful and inclusive surfing culture for more than two decades, while crafting some of the comfiest footwear around. Thanks, Sanook, for your support and for encouraging water people around the globe to protect their happy places. Learn more about Sanook's partnership with the Surfrider Foundation at sanook.com. Thanks also to Gary McNeil Concepts, who make cosmic surfboards for cosmic people. Gaz's boards combine recycled and plant-based materials that are built to last without sacrificing performance. To learn more, head to GaryMcNeilConcepts.com. I did some high-quality journalistic prep last night, Jack, um, on Google. Nice. And <laughs> there's this little box that comes up like halfway down the page that suggests other search queries or like... Um, what other people have asked about a similar person. And the question, the first question that came up was what happened to musician Jack Johnson? <laughs> and um, Oh no, <laughs> I'm over the hill. <laughs> you, you, know, just, you, um, you know, it's been what five years since you released your previous album and right. you're, you're depicted yeah. as like this. I always love, <laughs> I don't mean to digress. Sorry. No, I know no, I, I, we have a delay, so I didn't realize I was talking to you, but it, I always love typing in like the first couple of things. And then like, what does Dave Rostovich? And then you like, you see what it wants, like whatever <laughs> yeah. the most, I think is that the algorithm or something yeah, that yeah. figures out like what the most common question is, you know? And it's like, it's always funny to see those yeah. things, but uh, sorry. No, no, what was the, uh... you're, you're, you're depicted as this like archetypically like mellow guy. And I imagine there's heaps of pressure, outside pressure to, to make, to go fast, to create lots, to keep producing. How do you, how do you balance that pressure right. with um, being and enjoying your everyday life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
I'm literally surrounded by friends and family through the whole thing. Like, um, and it's not the norm, you know, like I have a lot of good friends that I've met over the years that play music. And some people have that situation, but really good people end up in situations where they don't necessarily have great relationships with their business associates, like managers and booking agents and stuff like that. I just got really lucky. I mean, and it's, it's partly just kind of the things you were talking about before, like the value system that kind of led us to this point and like, there was long walks that Kim, my wife, I mean, you guys know her, but I just saying that for anybody out there listening, my wife, Kim and I used to take walks on the beach, like the first couple of record deal offers we got. And I was so lucky to have her. Cause she would just like, sometimes I'd be like, let's do it. This is crazy. I can't believe they're offering that. Like, this is nuts. And she'd be like, I don't know. She's like, if somebody offers you that much money up front, they're going to want a lot on the other side. So like, I'd much rather like, know how much they want you to tour. And like, she would always ask the important questions. I was ready to like, jump right in. And so, so lucky to have her cause we would just take these long walks and kind of talk it over. And so instead of getting a real manager, Kim and my good friend Emmett just be, became my managers. You know, Emmett was the guy editing the surf movies that I was working on at the time. And he was just one of my smarter friends. And so like the three of us would sometimes be in the room and we just start talking about things and I was like, I think you guys might be just be my managers, you know? So like, they literally read a book on how to be a music manager. I think that was the title. <laughs> and so it started, it started with that. And then from there, like every person that we would hire would kind of like usually be our friend who seemed like they could probably do that. Let's just get them to do it. And, <laughs> and then sometimes those people were actually doing it. And then we would meet them and be like, that person seems like you could hang out with them. And so we would, uh, as we built it, it was just always this family thing. And so I could truly tell you, like, I don't have one single person around me who's like trying to get me to do more than they think I should be doing. Like, they all kind of know me and like, what's best for you and your family kind of is always kind of considered. So it's just really like a really nice team of friends and family. There's a couple of them that like earshot right now in the room, just sitting over here, hanging out. And it's like, I don't know, I never want to like, I never want these, like a week like this where I'm doing press, for instance, like I'm away from my family for about like five days or a week. And I don't ever want that to be like where I'm with people I don't want to be with. I always just want to be spending time with people I love. And so, you know, otherwise it's like kind of a waste of time. And it, um, so just real lucky there, kind of going back to your question, it's just surrounded by people who, even when I'm not in the room are making good choices for me. Mm. Mm. We've gotten to share a bit of family time together over the last few years. And something that always strikes me is what a beautiful partnership you and Kim have both like yeah, as parents, as a family, but also publicly with the Kokua Foundation and your other environmental mm -hmm. initiatives. I'd love to hear um, a reflection on what you've learned in 20 years of marriage. Sure. Or, um, you know, a lot of us yeah, have heard yeah. the beautiful, um, sweet love songs. Where are you all at? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great partnership since we were 18 years old. We met in college, like right at the beginning of college. And um it's funny because I mean, like, since our our little group of friends, like, um, for all those people listening, we all hang out. <laughs> and uh, no, but anyways, like you guys have noticed, like, since we've been married and all that stuff. But it even goes like before we got married, we were together for a long time uh, since we were 18 years old. And so, like, ever since I've been even trying to write songs, she's been there kind of like helping me do it. Like she's I always consider her to be like my editor, you know, it's like somebody who hears the ideas before anybody else does and can kind of give me feedback. The love songs, not so much. Like those are always just more kind of like a joke to make her laugh. And then when there's like enough truth in it and it becomes like something that um, 
we f- I feel like other people can relate to. I share them, but not all of them get shared. Some of them are so silly and dumb. They're just for her and they make her laugh when they work. And that was all it was for, you know, other signs there's like, there's something to them that feels like, oh, this is kind of worth like rearranging and not making it so personal and like growing it into something else. And I do mm. that sometimes. Uh, but yeah, so it started with that. And then as we went along, she was going back to school for um, getting her master's in education. She was becoming a school teacher and I was just starting to go on the road a little bit. And we spent a little time where she was so busy with school and I was busy like with my friends in the band touring but we'd meet back up every couple of weeks and we we're kind of like, I'm not sure I like this. I don't know me either. And then like she started teaching and it was all exciting stuff we were both doing and we were both having like personal growth, but it was like also like, Hey, I don't think we should like continue to be apart this much. I don't think it's going to work hmm. for us, you know? And so like, so after a few years of teaching, um, I stole her and like, I well like it was a mutual decision, but we said, why don't you come on the road and then you'd be my kind of like my tour manager. So she used to come and like set up the little merch table at the clubs. And then she would kind of like deal with the ticket counts and all this stuff for me. And so it was cool because then we got, as it grew, she didn't want to have to do all that stuff. We hired real tour managers, but she kind of knew how to set the tone for people. Like, this is what our tour is going to be like. She would help to book all the, the dates and everything. And it's like still is a huge part of all the tour planning and still manages my career. But it's... um. And then with the Kuku Hawaii Foundation, there was like a certain point where I think she really had that her family and it's like in her blood education. They're all they're all teachers. And she just really wanted to get back into education. And I think that with uh, we started realizing that as we gathered people, we had this real ability to be able to share things we wanted besides the music. You know, she always kind of saw that she could take the spotlight and like, okay, you got enough spotlights on you. I'm going to shine a couple of these over here on different things. And um so it's been a partnership, but I really, it's, it's with a lot of trust in her and like, uh, just, you know, she's really amazing. And so I, I follow her lead quite a bit on like the, um, the organizational stuff. We have Johnson Ohana foundation, which gives out grants to all the nonprofit groups when we go on tour and funds things, even when we're off uh, a tour cycle, we're able to fund a lot of the things we want to see in the world with music and art and environmental education. And then Kuku Hawaii Foundation is more centered in Hawaii and we're very involved in like curriculum for school gardening and, and that kind of stuff. And now we have this new eight acre farm that's really exciting. We're developing this learning farm that's for kids to come and have uh, field trips at and community members come together and do volunteer work days there. It's been mm-hmm. a lot of fun. It's like a lot of work, but it's really rewarding. You know, we, we kind of tend to make ourselves busy no matter what. And so we were, just kind of saying, Hey, if we're going to be busy, might as well be busy building a kid's learning farm. seems mm. like a worthy endeavor. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And I'm stoked we got there, Jack. Cause I remember last year we had a yarn, um, before we, um, had a chat like this with John Florence and we were, oh, yeah, yeah, that's we're, right. We're, that was fun. I remember both, um, sort of dorking out on the food growing thing and just speaking about how, how good it feels to be, you know, Im- embedded in the growing cycle and, um, and then sharing that with other people, uh, likewise, we've, or not likewise, we have a very different version of what you're talking about, but we've had a, a growing project for the last couple of years that, um, you know, we have lots of people come and join us in the garden and take food and, and just how deeply rewarding that's felt for us. And, um, and I remember hearing that in you as well. And, yeah, I, I was just wondering if there's an update on how things are going there, and any any recent epiphanies you've had around 
food and growing? Yeah, it's been really exciting. It's um, we have a partner farmer on the farm now. Like part, it's kind of like the way it's divided up is um, we have our curriculum plots where um, right now like high school age interns come and they they start with like going in the nursery and planting seeds and then they transfer them over to these plots and then they grow them all the way to where they can do a little harvest party at the end and like cook food and the parents come on the last day and like share a meal. That part's one section. And then we have a partner farmer who's growing food for local restaurants and local markets. And he's like a really amazing farmer. And we have him, like our partnership there is that rather than like a transfer of money for to be there, he helps us to make sure everything else is kind of working on the property, the irrigation, and he has the know-how. So he like helps us quite a bit with like, um, with our curriculum side of the thing, make sure that's all growing well and on track. And then we've got this other area where we're growing lo'ikalo, which is like the traditional way to grow taro plant. And it's, um, you know, deeply rooted into the Hawaiian culture. And it's the, uh, in the creation myth, it's the the oldest sibling of the Hawaiian people. It's the older, older brother. And it's, um, so it's like a really important crop in Hawaii. And it's been rewarding in that same way you're talking about, just to learn more about there's so many variety of kalo and each one has a different story and a reason for the name. So that's been a great learning process for me there. And then over in the corner, we have this area called the, it's the constructed native wetland. And what we've done is take out all these invasive trees, planted a bunch of native wetland plants. And then we've watched now and enough time has passed to see like all these native insects are coming back. There's this one native dragonfly called Pinao. And it's like the biggest dragonfly, not only in Hawaii, but also in all of North America. It's this big blue dragonfly. It's, it's like bigger than your finger. Mm-hmm. And, um, once that started coming back, it was real exciting. And then now the birds have actually started coming back. And then these native birds, um, there's one called the Ai'o in particular. It's like a Hawaiian stilt and it stands in the water and it eats the old insects around and stuff. And that one now started going over these little islands that we kind of shaped to keep mongoose and cats away. And it's starting to sit over there. And so like the last couple of days I've been gone, but they've been sending me pictures. We have like a bird nerd chat group uh, with my friends and like their the farm manager, his kid, Daniel, he's awesome. And he, uh, he'll send me pictures, like, check it out. It's starting to like sit there every morning. I'm wondering if it's like thinking about making a little nest right there and stuff. Oh, and um, cool. so anyways, that's been like the real exciting part is like watching this, this kind of cycle of native plants and animals starting to return. I have a kind of a, a left field <laughs> turn here, but um, good, good. I'm ready. I'm cu- I'm curious. So, you know, in surfing, how, we we all have different styles of surfing like everybody oh, yeah. Surfs. yeah just 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 put a little more weight on your back foot when you when you do your bottom <laughs> turns dave you'll be fine you'll be able to surf just like thank you. <laughs> yeah oh god i wasn't going to ask the question so thank you for jumping in there um you no, know no, how ahead, everyone's sorry. everyone's got like innate something innate in their surfing style and then yeah. we also on top of that are influenced by the type of waves we grow up surfing and then we're also influenced by the the surfers we see around us, and then somehow at the end of all that, or during all of that, we s- stumble across our own expression expressive style in surfing. Mm-hmm. And I was curious about this in regards to music and your particular type of music, and wondering if the way you play and like I guess the way your really popular music um, comes out of you if that is something you just can't get away from it's your like innate style it's like when you close your Mm -hmm. eyes and super late at night and you just disappear into the playing that that's just that's just your style 
or how much of how you play has been, you know, influenced and affected by externals? I want to talk about this for like 20 minutes. Cause at first, when you're asking the question, I was starting to think about, um, I think in our, in the surfing culture, it's like, I will get to the music, I promise. But I feel like there was this time where when you look back, like everybody's style was so distinct, right? Because there was an era where, where, people were mostly writing boards even that were only shaped in that zone. And then like some people had twin fins, some people were on single fins. And of course you're going to be able to, you're going to have to ride those different, the weight distribution and stuff. And then you get like, uh, you know, you get particular styles like where one guy might throw his back arm all the way on his bottom turn something. And then the other guys are twisting a whole different way. Like things were so different for a while. And then, you know, we had Curran come along and I remember just like watching movies and thinking like, okay, where's he putting his back foot? And okay, his toes. Kind of, I would like literally just want to like surf like current, but it was all through my own kind of uh, desire to do that. So I don't, it's like, I think there was like maybe our era and you're younger than me, but like um, our era of like being able to see current and a lot of kids saying, I want to surf like that, trying to figure out the best you could. And you got like Kelly Slater's, right? I think of like when I remember seeing Kelly when he was younger and even yourself, like I can see Curran in your surfing, but it's still kind of your own stamp because I think that generation was still trying to figure out the best they could, but nobody was telling them what to do yet. And then now there's still lots, loads of people who have their own cool styles and stuff. But I feel like uh, with the way like professional surfing is taken so serious now and everything, there's so much coaching involved I feel like it's like people are coached to the point where it's like a lot of it feels a little homogenized and like, um, like real similar styles and really good. I mean, it's mind blowing to watch people uh, compete on the levels they do and stuff, but sometimes I kind of miss those days where people had such unique styles like each of the guys on tour, even, you know, like mm-hmm. during that era where like Aki, Curran, Gary Elkerton, each one was so different. Like the mm-hmm. way they'd all serve care, you know, Tom Carroll, they all approached their, like their basic, fundamental like bottom turns and top turns even different than each mm. other um i guess it's not a negative or a positive it's just interesting to watch as the culture went from being a a subculture to like a pop culture mm. exactly. the way that um that it kind of lost a little bit of the uniqueness of some of the and so i think you could apply almost the exact same thing to the music then it's like some people come up and they kind of follow those innate things they have um there's nobody there to tell them they're doing something wrong I remember one time, like I s- sat in the room with this really uh, pretty important and like well-known producer <clears throat> who'd heard like my demo tapes. And then he's like, here, play me that song. And then he kind of asked me, he's like, why do you keep putting, like, why do you keep putting sevenths like on all your chords? And I didn't even know what a seventh was at that point. Like, it's like, if you're doing a bar chord and you lift your pinky up, it makes the chord from like a major into like a seventh, you know, like a, a major, I don't know if it's a major seventh. I still don't know what the hell that's up. But it's so like, <laughs> it, uh, but he was like, he was like telling me, he's like, no, no, you shouldn't put a seventh there, you know, kind of thing. And I was like, oh, really? And I, I all of a sudden I felt like, oh, shoot. Like all this, like it was one of the first times I'd been in the room with like a professional because he had heard that mm-hmm. like when I was making September sessions of Thicker Than Water, I had these little like floating around tapes. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I knew it. Like, I don't know anything kind of thing. But then you go in a room with somebody else. That would be almost the equivalent of like a surf coach. Like they're going to kind of tell you like, oh, no, no, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. You should do it like this kind of thing. There's a certain way. Whereas you get in a room with somebody else and they'll they'll realize like, oh, that's what makes your stuff unique. You're putting sevens on everything and nobody else does that. So whatever, mm. just keep rolling with it. Mm. Uh, and so I think music's very similar. Like you hear some people and it's like all 
style and all just like a beautiful thing. And it's, and then you hear other people and it's like a lot of technique and very practiced. And it's like, both can be great. Like you hear people sometimes that are mind blowingly great, but you can tell they've almost been coached. You know what I mean? Mm. And I tend to like the music that's, that's less that and more of the uh, people going kind of with the thing that they, uh, they found naturally. Jack, one of the things I love, and I think a lot of one of the elements that resonate with so many people about your music, especially lyrically, is the savoring of simplicity. Um, it's like this interjection or reminder of the the beauty and um, the elements that we can be appreciating all the time. Um, dreams come up thematically a lot mm-hmm. in your lyrics. Can you talk to us about that? Are you are you have you studied Jung in some way or or is it yeah. Yeah. Only th- only through like uh, Joseph Campbell talks a lot about Carl Jung. Yeah. And so um, I can't pretend to know too much. I know certain like quotes and stuff from Carl Jung. Me and Zach, who plays piano in a band, like we sometimes joke, like what else is there be- besides like dreams and time and the heart? Like it's so easy to come back to these like certain themes through songs, you know, and it's like I constantly want to talk about the passing of time and dreams. It's just like so fascinating. Those- things you can dig so deep into them. Mm. dreams dreams are really interesting because like what the hell are they like what's going on there like <laughs> i never know like you wake up in the morning sometimes and i'll think like what no why did i have that and i'll try to like i'll try to put some meaning to it but a lot of times it's just like you can't quite figure out why your mind would possibly go into that place other times i can be like oh it makes a lot of sense of why i would have had that image during mm. the night and um so i don't know i like to always do my best to kind of like write the dreams down if I can um, as I still remember because sometimes I'll remember them and then like later in the day I can't remember anymore but if you if you do take the time to write them down oh and then that part and what the oh I remember then I went in that room and like it, it it like starts this kind of chain of events and whether or not you use those things it's like sometimes there's one strange little um, like dichotomy or like a juxtaposition of images that lead to like a really interesting lyric, you know, for me. And um, Mm. yeah, so I like to kind of follow the dreams as much as I can. And um, I have a friend that I just recently found out is one of the most like famous neuroscientists in the world right now. I'll just give him a plug because he's a good friend, but he's got a podcast uh, called the Huberman Lab. It's like a really popular podcast. A lot of people are listening to somebody was talking about in there and said his name. And I was like, wait, what? It's like, I know that guy from college. Like we went to school together. He was my friend. And so I looked him up. I was like, what? That's the same guy. I know that guy. So I called him. And uh, the point I bring it up is because like this, I got him on the phone. We were talking for a while, just catching up about old friends and where people are at stuff. And then at some point I was like, all right, come on, just give me like the five minute version. What do I need to know about the brain and stuff? And he was like, all right, here's the deal. <laughs> he was like, we, we found out, like we've done these studies and we don't know exactly what it is, but there's this communication that happens in one part of your brain. We know that this is the part that's active during the night when you're dreaming. Hmm. And this other part is like when you wake up in the morning, like some other part turns on and he's probably like, what are you doing, Jack? You're butchering this. It's like something like this, you know, he'll, <laughs> but it's like, there's a communication that happens like for the first hour you're awake between this, uh, this one part of your the dream part of the brain and like the waking part. And there's this little communication happening. And he said, as soon as you look at the phone, they've done these studies and they can see that communication just stops. Hmm. It's like over. So he was like, the one advice I'll give you is just like, don't look at your, I don't know, like we don't know what it does yet or like what the ramifications are, but we do know that phone or like any kind of like device stuff turns off that communication. So I, he was like, I think for you, like being a songwriter, 
you definitely want to stay off your phone for like the first 45 minutes of the day if you can, you know, so wow. sounds kind of logical. And like, we kind of know that anyways, but it was like a good reminder when you're like, you know, sometimes I'll have it there to wake me up on in the morning, like on tour or something. And then you like go to turn it off and then you think like, oh, should I check? No, don't do it. Put that thing <laughs> down. Do it. Another do reason yeah, to go for early morning surf if you can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that Cuddles. one works good too for the, uh, the, the whole red light thing he was explaining too. Wow. Get out in the red light in the morning. I want to be conscious of our time, Jack, and I know we can all yarn for for many, many hours on many things. And (laughs) the one thing we both really wanted to get to is lyrical content. And we were listening while we were with our little boy, Mino, last night having dinner and a a fire and a cold night, and we were listening to the latest album. And I was paying even more attention to the lyrics, and I couldn't help but think that these are protest songs delivered in the kindest, most considerate possible way. <laughs> but if you change the way they were delivered, you could totally be at a rally outside your local council chambers <laughs> shouting them out and they would make yeah, sense. Yeah, they would cool. really make sense. And I did a couple right, right. of terrible versions of that and Lauren just walked away. But <laughs> but it did it was making us think about that. And I was just curious about that part of of you of you and and reflecting on obviously societal ecological moments that we're all in right now no that's really cool it just is kind of like the natural way i i do it in the sense of um it's not so intentional it's just the way i feel like i can do it best in a way you know it's um kind of the way it comes natural and then so i worked with this guy named blake mills who i hope that we all have a chance to hang out someday together he's i've only known him for this year like we started talking back in uh um, maybe like September or October or something. And uh, and now we know each other really well because when you spend like 12 hours a day in a studio together, it doesn't take that long. You like become best of friends. And so either that or you hate each other. And so we went the good route. We like became best of friends. So anyways, like he was a huge part of shaping the sonic qualities on this album and kind of... Um, He's just like a really, really great guitar player. He's like a very supportive guitar player. On his own, he can do anything he wants and he has his own albums he puts out too. But when he's when he helped me make this record, he would just always play these parts that weren't like trying to stand out or anything. They were just helping lift and give energy to the things I was playing. And um, so we just decided, let's start with like two guitars on every song and play it live and then see where the song wanted to go from there. So yeah, I don't have like a perfect answer of like, oh, this is my thought of why to do it a certain way. It's just more like we would sit down and play what felt natural for each song. And that's kind of how we got to it. But it was it was a lot of fun making. I feel like I learned a lot about playing guitar on this record just because I sat with such a a good guitar player so much. Mm. I read that Blake said that working with you on Meet the Moonlight was, quote, one of the most spiritually interesting things he's ever worked on um, in light of the culture that we're in that tends to push toward the dystopian toward the negative, toward the divisive. Jack, I was just wondering if you could lend us any antidotes to those elements. What what do you employ in your own life to, um, to yeah. keep dreaming and keep things positive? That's such a good question. There's a there's a Hawaiian artist named Solomon Enos that uh, I heard give a talk to a bunch of kids once. And he was talking about in art, you have to envision a beautiful future. There's too much dystopian um, versions of the future being painted in movies and in art in general and that it's up to you like you can decide what you want the future to look like in your imagery that you create and so I think um, in the back of my mind somewhere I think that's that's part of it whenever I shape a song like I want there to be as much hope as possible like some some songs don't necessarily call for like a 
a junk load of hope, but it's like, I always want there to be some kind of hope within a song. It's like you. And so anyways, I think, I think that's really important message for kids. It's like, don't feel like, don't fall victim to thinking that you have to like, uh, imagine a dystopian future. You know, you have to, for it to become a reality, you have to imagine it first as being beautiful and, uh, um, and try to create that and like draw that picture every day if you can. Thanks for listening with us today. If you have a spare moment, please leave us a review or consider sharing an episode with a friend. Both help us to find the very best stories from our global community of water people. This episode was edited by Ben Alexander. The podcast soundtrack was composed by Shannon Sol Carroll, with additional tunes improvised by Dave and goofy-footed legends Neil Purchase Jr. and Christian Barker. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcast.